welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Cooley and Silicon Valley Bank. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Rob Mazzoni is a principal at Truebridge Capital Partners, an alternative investment firm founded in 2007 that now manages over $2.2 billion. Rob has been with Truebridge since the beginning and worked with one of the founders previously at the UNC Endowment. He's known as one of the sharpest young LPs in the industry, so we're psyched to have him on Origins. Rob, um, so excited to have you on Origins. Thank you for joining us. Um, welcome. Thank you, Nick. All I'm right. excited to be here. I'm a big fan of podcasts and Origins specifically, so it's an honor to be here and a guest with you. You're our one listener. Nice. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I don't believe that. Um, okay. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and your background and where you grew up? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in central Pennsylvania, so a few hours from here. We're in New York City recording. Yep. Uh, I grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, or right outside okay. of Hershey, Pennsylvania. My hometown's called Lebanon, actually. And um, I ended up at college in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina. I went there because I went to basketball camp in seventh and eighth grade at the univer- at uh, UNC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was, you fell in love with it? I fell in love with Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, You're a basketball fan? I'm a big Tar Heel mm-hmm. basketball fan. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I had a lot of gravitational pull to that place. And... I'm still in Chapel Hill, North center? Carolina. Yeah, I was a center. I'm, uh, you can't see me since <laughs> me this is audio, but I'm <laughs> me too. about 5'7". Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, so I uh, went to UNC for undergrad, studied business and finance. And my first role out of undergrad was working on the investment team at right. UNC Chapel Hill's endowment. Right. Um, so Big I, endowment, right? It's, um, it was about a billion and a half under management okay. when I was there. Today, I think it's north of $2 billion. Okay. So relatively sizable yeah. pool of capital. How do you um, get that job? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I was a senior in college, I had an honors thesis professor, okay. um, my advisor on my honors thesis. And uh, he was someone who became a mentor to me, uh, someone who uh, I worked closely with on my thesis, which ended up growing up in central Pennsylvania. It was about commodity price risk management at Hershey. 
Oh, wow. My professor had done a thesis on the same thing at Dell Corporation. And wow. so we just vibed and clicked on that. And like he became the company Hershey. Yeah. So, um, like, how do you manage? How do you manage the commodity line? price risks right. that's associated with all the inputs right. for Hershey as a company? Right. That's cocoa, sugar, right. all the inputs to making chocolate. Right. Um, but he actually gave me David Swenson's book when I was okay. a senior in college. Yep. And that talked a lot about how great endowments are as a place to start your career. It obviously talked about the nine asset classes that Yale invested in. Right. And a lot of endowments also followed suit investing a similar portfolio. But it also touted endowments as a great place with relatively small investment teams where you get exposure to senior management managers at hedge funds, private equity right. funds, venture capital firms right. relatively early in your career. And so I didn't obviously exclusively target endowments and foundations for my first role out of college, but I interviewed at a couple of them and was really lucky to end up at UNC and outside, get to stay in Chapel outside Hill. Outside of UNC too. I did. Okay. I interviewed at a couple other endowments and foundations and had some other opportunities as well. Yeah, I was... Uh incredibly fortunate to actually get to know David Swenson a little bit as an undergrad at Yale and um, totally squandered the opportunity in every possible way. And I, I, I think I just didn't even have the concept or the context that, um, you know, just how big of a role these endowments played in the, you know, capital formation ecosystem. It's a really interesting, it's an interesting point and an interesting role that I think is really under the radar. Yeah. I certainly didn't know about it in, as an undergrad at UNC that right. the endowment was something that existed and um, really only realized it late in my undergrad career. Uh, and then even going to business school, I went to the University of Chicago and a lot of folks there targeting roles in business and finance uh, and some type of role on the buy side. And the endowment and foundation world is really just undercover, under the radar. Mm. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. You can take a long-term approach to investing. Um, and like I said, you get exposure to really right. smart people right. at the forefront of right. innovation in their right. asset classes. So you're it was like an a, awesome place to, like to spend time. You're a 23-year-old kid and you're meeting with like the top VCs and hedge fund folks and private equity and real estate and all these things. Exactly. And yeah, you, you literally get to be a fly on the wall in the right. room. Right. Hearing them talk about their business and right. the ideas that they're most excited about that they think will generate strong risk-adjusted risk returns for the foreseeable future. Um, and you learn from managers at that firm, myself at UNC, uh, in my case, um, that are doing just, just really interesting, interesting stuff. So uh, it, it was a fantastic place to start my career. I was only there for, ended up being there for two years because the head of the private equity portfolio at UNC's endowment, his name's Mel Williams, right. ended up leaving in 2007 to start Truebridge Capital Partners, which is where I'm at now. Where, and where did, over the course of those two years, did you focus, did you work with him specifically and work on uh, private private market that's investing? Right. Or did you work across the, the whole portfolio? Like, how did you split your time there? Yeah, so we were generalists within private okay. equity. Uh, so okay. I was on the private side of the portfolio. Mel okay. was the head of the private portfolio. Got it. Venture capital was a component of that. So I spent time on venture, but also spent time on buyouts, real estate, oil and gas, mezzanine funds yep. as well. So kind of got to see the gamut, was a generalist, uh, kind of, um, uh, yeah, spent a lot of time across the portfolio. Um, so... Okay, so Mel left in 2007 or so um, to start TrueBridge. Uh, 
with another partner from UNC? He did. Or? So uh, he started with a guy named Edwin Poston, okay. right. who's uh, his co-founder at Truebridge. Right. Um, Edwin was doing essentially the same thing as Mel, but at the Rockefeller Foundation okay. here in New York. Got it. So overseeing the Rockefeller Foundation's yep. private investment portfolio. Mel and Edwin had known each other for uh, a long period of time. They went to undergrad together okay. and their professional paths cl- crossed as they were both managing private equity portfolios. Okay. Got it. Yeah, we had um, Tom Lenahan from Rockefeller actually on this podcast a couple oh, yeah. a couple seasons ago who runs the private uh, – um, or does a lot of private um, investing at, yep. at Rockefeller now, um, which is a fascinating institution, actually. Um, it is. So so they left their respective firms to start Truebridge. Um, I want to I get to how you ultimately joined them. Yeah. But um, could you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the beginnings of Truebridge? Yeah, absolutely. Then? Yeah. Yeah, so it was um, late... 07, early 08, that I made the decision to join. And the reason I did that was, I think first, it was a chance to start a business and help build a business with someone in Mel who I had a ton of respect for. He was someone who became my professional mentor during my time Mm -hmm. at UNC's endowment. And I knew I could continue to learn a lot from him. So, um, And they, they, um, they started it then and and when they started it did they ask you to join them they did yeah okay, so it was, wow. it was really just okay. at the early days wow. Wow. that i was so joining it was, it was two and you exactly i was the first investment team wow. hire so it was essentially a startup and we focus on the venture asset class at Truebridge, which we can talk more about but right we invest in firms that are backing the best founders pursuing the boldest ideas so it felt right to be doing that from a seat where we were in essence a startup ourselves right. building a firm. Right. Um, and the other thing I really liked about the opportunity was that I could focus on one asset class mm-hmm. in venture capital with the, beho- the hope of becoming more expert on that than kind of the generalist approach that we had the capacity to be at at right. UNC. So we managed portfolio the UNC portfolio uh, really well and generated strong returns. But I liked the idea of becoming an expert or somewhat of an expert over time in one asset class right. and particularly an asset class in venture that I found most interesting. So tell us about uh, Truebridge. My understanding is it's structured like a fund of funds focused on venture capital, but but tell me if I'm if I'm No, that's exactly right. Okay. So and I'll I'll take you back to that time period okay. when we were starting Truebridge and I'll say that we had some really good timing. So venture was dead at the time. Right. If you think back to 2007 and 2008, it had been seven or eight years since the dot-com crash. Right. Three and five year returns in the industry were not good and it was relatively hard to raise money. Um, we found a good and really supportive group of institutional investors who had a long-term belief in the asset class and wanted high-grade exposure to the asset class that was provided by investors with a set of relationships like we had with the best venture capital firms that okay. were stemming from our roles at UNC and okay. Rockefeller, where Mel and Edwin were Got it. prior, that we could add a layer of insight from our foundation and endowment days um, since we had been doing it for a long time. What was really good was that we raised our first fund. It was $310 million. We raised it immediately pre-crisis, pre-financial crisis. Okay. And then just after the financial crisis, endowment and foundation investors, who are typically the biggest investors in this asset class, were over-allocated to venture capital because they had big public portfolios, big private portfolios. When the financial markets crashed, their public market portfolios crashed along with that. 
And they were, as a result, overallocated to venture, which right. marks their portfolios to market right. on a slower time period. So as endowments and foundations were backing away from venture, that opened up access to some firms that we might not have had access to as a startup okay. in this ecosystem. And we also got larger allocations to some firms where we did have access, but we not, might not have had access in the size that we did at TrueBridge in the early days. So that's in the early days. Um, and so, so, so just so I understand, so um, Mel and Edwin and yourself went out, I'm guessing with a bunch of pre-existing LP relationships themselves. That's right. Raised this $300 million first fund um, in 2008. The world then falls apart, and all of a sudden, there's interesting access and opportunities right. to maybe, I guess, some really well-established VC yes. firms that they maybe wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yes. And but, I mean, one thing I'll say about that, too, is that funds of funds are criticized, sometimes rightfully so, for adding a layer of fees right. to what's already a relatively high-fee right. asset class, right. both hedge funds and the private equity asset class, broadly speaking. Why I think it makes sense and why we thought as a startup it made sense at that time is that venture is an asset class where, um, and you know this, but the dispersion of returns between even top decile and top quartile returns is so great that getting access to the managers yeah. that can generate top decile returns is so important. And well worth the fees. Well worth the fees right. at the right. end of the day. And, um, and so we, had, we were able to provide that access but also, obviously, the insight, the layer of judgment on top of the portfolio to make the right decisions, we yeah. hope. Yeah. So um, so since that first fund in 2008, um, could, you, could you tell us a little bit? I mean, you've been there since the beginning. And I, I think you left for a stint uh, at business school in mm -hmm. Chicago um, and have rejoined since. So you've been basically there right. for the last 10 years yep. almost. Wow. Um, how has the firm evolved since those early days in 2008? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, I would say, try to continue to be innovative and add values to our partners in different ways as much as we can. And I would consider our partners to be, you know, our limited partners, certainly, who right. invest with us to generate high-risk adjusted returns. And that's what's really important to us at the end of the day. But we also see our partners and our customers uh, per se, as the VCs that we invest capital with and the management teams that receive yep. our capital both on an indirect and a direct basis because we also invest directly in companies alongside our managers. Yep. So, and um, have you done that since the beginning or is that newer? That's So we the made our stuff. first direct investment out of our first fund of funds, but we only made one direct investment. Um, that was in a company called LifeLock before it went public. Okay. We have since carved bigger portions out of our fund of funds okay. to invest directly in companies. Yep. So we had basically 10% carve outs from our second, third, and fourth funds of funds to invest directly in companies. And then more recently, we raised a pool of capital to invest directly in companies. So we had some of our investors who wanted that pure play direct exposure to companies that yep. we could provide at mid and later stages alongside our managers and their best performing companies. And so you carved a, that out as a whole separate fund. We have, Got yep. It. And that's more recently? It is. We raised our first direct fund in early 2016. Okay, got it. And you're on what number fund of funds? We're on our fifth fund of funds. Fifth we closed fund. that late last wow. year. Okay. It's a $450 million vehicle. Okay. Um, how has the firm changed or evolved? In that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say, you know, we try to be innovative 
through some unique partnerships that we have. Right. One is with Forbes Publishing. Okay. So we partnered with Forbes about eight years ago uh, to work with them on the Midas list. That's right. So the Midas list is the annual ranking of the top 100 venture capitalists. That's right. And Forbes had been doing the Midas list since 2001. So it was kind of just post the fervor of the dot-com bubble and crash. And they did it from 2001 to, I think, 2008. And they took a couple-year hiatus as they were shifting their business model okay. to focus on more outsourced resources and outsourced okay. reporting. We saw a vacuum in that time period to maybe step in and maybe work on our own list. Or So, so I, I want to ask you a few <laughs> questions about this. Because yes. Midas list is a top hot, hot subject in, the, in VC um, realms. Um, Forbes started in 2001 basically as a ranking, just so folks know, as a ranking of VCs, essentially. Is that right? right? Yeah, it's 100 um, VCs ranked annually who are ideally performing at the top of the And how in the world were they going about that? Like, like, cause, cause returns for the most part are private, not disclosed, hard to really figure out at the end of the day. Um, do you know how Forbes was going about it? You know, pre True Bridges involvement. So, so that's exactly what we did. But they were, we were just guessing. At we it. were, we were kind of thinking maybe we could fill a vacuum and do our own list if Forbes is not producing this okay. list anymore. Because we do think this, it's a really interesting ranking. People like to see it. Founders like to see it yeah. because they want to be backed by the right. best VCs. Right. So we reached out to Forbes and we simply asked them, you know, we wanted to get their insight as to how they, they had been doing it over okay. the years and see what we could learn from that, see why they had shuttered the list and so forth. And they basically were thin on resources. They could not prosecute the data in ways that we could. Right. They didn't have access to the type of data that we had as a fund of funds on performance. And so they basically said at that time, you know, we're resource constrained. We've been cobbling t this together with journalists, um, one or two who we could allocate to the list at the time. We would love help. And right. we're actually thinking about restarting the Midas list. And so they ask, actually asked us or we worked with them to become their partner on this okay. process. Um, it's something that gets a good amount of readership. Readers care yeah. about it. VCs and all tech sure. industry participants care about sure. it. And so it's something that matters a lot to us because we want to make sure it's done right. We will readily admit that it's not a perfect list. It's far from that. But what we try to do is make it very data-driven and try to make it better by adding incremental tweaks to the model that refine the list on a year-over-year -year basis. And where do you get the data from? Yeah, so this we get this is from private data from either VCs that you work with or potentially work with. I assume it's all anonymized and under NDA or something like that. But I'm curious, how do you think about collecting and using that data? Yeah, it's a great question. So we get data directly from firms that submit as part of the Midas list process. Okay. So, so VCs they submit, submit. They vo voluntarily submit data for consideration for this list. Okay. And it's very granular data that we get okay. for this process. It's the name of the company, the round in which that firm invested in that company, the date that they invested, their ownership, their investment okay. multiple, their dollar gains. Okay. All of that yeah. stuff feeds wow. into the model that we use to then okay. create this list of individuals. That's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. And now you have access to that data and you might use that to evaluate investing in managers. So we, I mean, we have access to a lot of data as a result of being right. a right. investor in a lot of these firms. So we right. have a lot of the data anyway. There is certainly data that we get as a result of this process that we didn't right. necessarily have that we use to complement our existing data. We also use data from 
outsource providers like PitchBook, VentureSource, and CB Insights and yeah. combine that all to make yeah. what we think is a fairly robust, defensible list. Um, you know, it certainly, we think, makes us smarter. We have insights that we glean as a result of this process. One of the things I think we learned in the past couple of years is we just saw the number of Chinese deals that were beginning to drive the list. I mm. think in 2017, it was eight of the top 19 deals that were driving the Midas list were wow. Chinese companies. Wow. This year for the 2018 list, it was 10 out of the top 20 deals were Chinese companies. Wow. So that kind of just coincides with, with this explosion in the Chinese market. The returns from our China portfolio are really compelling and you're seeing it in the Midas list data as well. Mm. And this is the first year it was a Chinese investor, Neil Shen at Sequoia, who is on right. top of the Midas list. And that's completely borne out by the data. His returns are phenomenal. Sequoia's returns in China wow. are phenomenal. And wow. just Chinese returns in general are doing really well. Amazing. Um, other ways in which True, TrueBridge has evolved since yeah, that first fund? Um, I'll mention two more quick things about yeah. Forbes. We've done outgrowths of the Midas list with Forbes over the years. So we now knew, we now do the next billion dollar startups list annually. It's a list of 25 companies that are all obviously valued below a billion dollars that are growing really quickly. We get submissions from companies and VCs for that list. It's a fairly robust submission process for that. We launched the first version of the, the uh, European Midas list this year. And we maintain an active blog on Forbes platform to write about companies and sectors of interest. Um, we also, um, the, something that I think we do that is perhaps relatively unique and interesting, we host a series of dinners. You're coming to one yep. tomorrow night. Yep. It's with, we call it next-gen dinners. Uh, but I think it's, it's probably just more appropriately future leaders of the venture industry. Um, some of them are more senior at their firms. Some of them are just starting out. Some of them run their own firms. But it's really an opportunity to get people together that may not have met, can talk about sectors and trends and companies that are really interesting in their portfolios and what they're seeing day to day, learn about what internal dynamics are like at their firms, and perhaps learn from one another about how to nav navigate some of those issues. And then, you know, it's an opportunity for us at TrueBridge to build relationships with some of these people. Yep. We know they're going to be the future leaders. They're going to be running Sequoia, Excel, and Andreessen, and a lot of these great firms um, or next iterations of those firms in the future. And we want to build strong relationships with those individuals today. So that's something that's important to us. And then there are some tweaks that we can talk about that we've made to our portfolio over the years, just as a result of what we call just staying nimble and in front of trends that are happening in the venture industry. Um, how many people are at the firm? We have 17 people wow. today. Okay. So that's and eight on the investment team. Yeah. Right. Eight on the investment team. Um, do you focus on a particular area within TrueBridge? So we're generalists at the okay. firm. Uh, I end up spending a fair bit of my time on seed fund investing and direct okay. investing. Uh, you know, I spent time in the early days at TrueBridge. This is kind of 2009 through 2011 period, evaluating seed managers. This is right as that segment of the market was yeah. forming and, you know, beginning to explode basically tried to meet every seed manager that was out there at the right. time and right. build relationships with them, certainly, but also just evaluate whether that's a segment that we wanted to have exposure to. And if we did, which managers to back in that category. So as a result of that lineage, I think I probably spend a bit more of my time there. It's also an area where we have over 300 seed managers in our database today. Right. Because of our early exposure to the category, I think we get a first look on a lot of managers. We got a lot of referrals from our existing portfolio a lot of referrals from founders and other GPs that we back. 
And so we have an opportunity to spend time with these firms as they're getting started. Um, there were at the you know at the time we've met we've spoken to some folks um, that we've had on Origins that um, I mean there's some folks that are you know dedicated to seed um, venture like Michael Kim at Sandana and some others right. or funds under 100 million. There's some larger fund of funds and other firms like it or endowments um, that haven't done anything in seed still 10 years later. Um, how did you think about that at the time? And, and, and um, if you can say, like, how did you end up deciding to work with certain managers in that category? We view seed as um, kind of, it's almost what's old as new. So as some firms like Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and um, Axel, who formerly backed companies at the very earliest stages, kind of pre-product, it was right. really just an idea and a founder. Some of those firms have gotten larger in size by the dollars that they invest, and that's created somewhat of a vacuum in the market. We really just view seed as typically sub $100 million funds that are yep. investing at the earliest stages of company formation. And by doing that, they're certainly taking risk. They're probably taking more risk than firms that are larger and investing at later stages. And as a result of that risk that they're taking, but also the layer of insight and judgment that they provide to backing the right founders in that category, they're, they're able to generate really high investment multiples. And so we've seen that kind of across our seed portfolio. It's performed really well over the years. Um, what were some of the, who were, can you, can you speak to like a couple people or stories around maybe 2009, 2010 that, that made you a believer and, um, in seed as a category and, and, uh, can you can you mention a couple of the firms that you that you chose to end up working with? Yeah, so it was you know I mentioned three hundred firms in our database today, and at that time I don't know what the exact numbers were, but it felt like there were probably between ten and thirty that right. were truly institutionally right. backable firms, and so we just tried to meet with all of those and build relationships with them. I would say we were not the first movers in seed. We um, took kind of a cautious, measured approach to the category, figured out whether it was a space we wanted to have exposure to, realized that we did. And at the time that we were doing that, one story I'll share is that we uh, reached out to Chris Saka, basically cold. I think I found right. his email right. on their website, uh, on Lowercase's website. And my colleague Edwin and I ended up having a first meeting uh, with uh, Chris at a bar in San Francisco. Yep. Uh, shared a glass of white wine together, chatted about his background. We were phenomenally impressed by his background. Um, you know, and he, he told us about his. He had started lowercase? He had, it, he had made angel investments, okay. had just started lowercase. He was actually investing out of fund one. I think his first okay. fund was a $7 million fund that we yeah. unfortunately were not investors in, right. given its performance. But we were really impressed by some of the stories that Chris shared about the companies that he had already backed on an angel basis and in lowercase one and some of the stories from his operating experience at Google. And so we came away from that meeting and decided to do a bunch of work on that fund. It was funny, you know, walking out of that that bar, we remember he was talking about Twitter over right. the course of our conversation, but he showed us the smartphone app, Uber, that he used to call a car. It was a black car at the time, mm -hmm. and it was a magical experience when we saw him get in that really? car and drive away. Yeah. 
And, you know, he was touting that as an investment in his, his portfolio. We didn't know what to make of it at the time. Right. Obviously, we know what that's gone on to do. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, Chris was, it was a non-obvious bet at the time just because he had not managed a big institutional pool yep. of capital before. And solo GP. Solo and, GP fund. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. And so did you end up investing in his? We ended up funds? investing in yep. his second fund uh, and, and his third fund. So we're really grateful to have, been partners with Chris. Um, he was, I would say his success uh, as both an operator and an investor was relatively unknown in Silicon Valley at the time. And that's something that we had mm. to do a lot of digging mm. and leverage the relationships that we had to mm. uh, assess. It was just, it was not easy to do. And that's something we find with a lot of these new managers. We have to right. really work hard on, um, on finding people that know these individuals well had worked yeah. with them in the past hopefully we have some degree of connection with them such that we trust the references insight um, and have ways to to really trust that reference you mentioned chris really impressing you in a in a first meeting with lowercase what are some of the other things that you aside from the obvious you know investments that folks have made or um you know uh experience as an operator or, or investor or whatever their background is what are some of the things that you look for maybe even interpersonally um in the managers that you might back particularly the the younger emerging folks sure. that that you know maybe have not spent the last 10 years at sequoia yeah, so I would say at a high level, and it's probably overly simplistic, but the rubric that I often think about is number one, we look for managers with really strong deal flow. So you have to see the best companies to have an opportunity to invest in them. Yeah. And we think of this as a power law driven industry. You know, a um, an individual company will wash out all the other returns in your portfolio. The first, the highest performing company in your portfolio will probably um, outperform all the others combined. The second highest portfolio company will outperform all the others and so forth. Um, and so you have to be in the best companies to drive outsized returns. So deal flow is really paramount in this world. And then number two, we think a lot about picking ability. So we call this investment judgment, the ability to pick the best companies from that choice deal flow uh, and ideally you know, pass on other companies that are lesser performing. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we, had, we evaluate this picking ability through uh, firms' track records. And you, know, you mentioned first-time fund manager. Firms don't always have, or individuals don't always have an institutional track record to rely on. So we're looking at their angel track record in that case. And in Chris's case, when we were backing lowercase the first time, we, he had an angel portfolio to point right. to that we- right took a really close look at. Right. Um, but yeah, particularly for firms that have been around for a long time, we closely scrutinize those track records. Yep. And we look at which individuals in the firms generated the track records, how yep. active those individuals continue to be, um, what their engagement is, and yep. so forth. And the third thing I would, I would probably add is the ability to add value post-investment. So yep. ideally... Uh, value add can move an investment outcome from a good to a great outcome. The reality is probably that in a company like Uber, a company like Airbnb, those companies are going to be successful yeah. as a result of Travis at Uber and Brian at Airbnb and the management teams that they've built around them rather than the VCs pulling a bunch of levers to make them the massive mm -hmm. companies that they are today. But we think that VCs can add value at the margin and at the very least, the value add that a VC provides 
will engender a lot of goodwill with management teams that then feeds back into deal flow at the top of the funnel because the folks that backed Uber and Airbnb in the early days were really helpful. They were thought partners as those folks built those businesses. Um, Brian and Travis are going to refer other founders to that firm as a result. So I I go back and forth on this, but but do you think there is such a thing as proprietary deal flow still um, in this day? I, I just think, you know, I think of the startup market today and the venture market today and um, information flow is so incredibly efficient. You know, uh, a lot of the best founders, you know, they're not going to like their one buddy at firm X. They're going out to all the firms and trying to raise, you know, the best round. So, you know, in a world in which like every VC is marketing themselves and everyone kind of know where to go and the founders are super savvy. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not sure there is such a thing as proprietary data flow. Like maybe all the VCs see all the deals. Do you think that's true or not? It's a really interesting point. And I understand and agree with the fact that venture capital is probably becoming more transparent and efficient. I think yeah. that's a good thing. I yeah. think, frankly, founders should have the same level of access to information as VCs do. Uh, you know, VCs see a lot of deals per year. Founders probably raise for one company per year. So right. that is an information asymmetry that right. exists. I do think, though, that if a marquee founder or a very credible founder with a compelling idea is raising money that there is going to be a short list of firms that they're going to talk to to raise capital for that idea. And if they don't raise capital for that idea from one of those three, four, call it, you know, five firms, they're going to move on to the next layer of firms. They're not going to talk to every firm in the market. So I just think that's the way it works. There's limited time and founders are going to optimize their time. I still think reputation matters a lot. And taking capital from a firm that ha- that is associated with su- the successes of, you know, WhatsApp and Facebook and Google over the years, I think that matters a lot to founders that that firm has steered those companies to success and can help steer the founder's company today to success in the future. Yep. How do you, do you think about, uh, I assume you do, but do you, do you think about um, maybe even in a, world in which there's very efficient information flow how do you figure out like what which firms are going to win the deal do you do do you like do you do uh, can you diligence that with founders or vcs at at other firms like because part of it is seeing and that part of it is picking and then also part of it is like winning winning the deal absolutely yeah so how do you how do you think about and diligence yeah so we spend a ton of time talking to founders as 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 part of our diligence process okay. on fund managers. Um, and I think that plays into this ability to win the deal. It's, you know, one of our questions that we always ask founders is, why did you choose to take capital right. from X firm? Right. And, you know, a lot of times it's that this partner worked really hard through the, the diligence process um, to be helpful to me, to make some customer introductions mm-hmm. for my company, to, um, to make management team introductions as I was building out and looking for a a CMO or a CTO or head of product. 
and the ability to make those intros was really helpful to me. And I realized that was going to be a really good partner to me over the long term as I'm building this business. We also find that founders often just look for someone who they click with on an interpersonal level and yeah. they think that they're going to really get along with and once again, be a good thought partner to, to that um, with that, uh, that GP. So that's something that's really important to us. But yeah, I mean, I mentioned the third part of our rubric that I think about a lot is this ability to add value post-investment and founder references is how we really diligence the, that ability to add value. Like were, were GPs showing up to board meetings on time? Did they show up prepared for those board meetings and add yep. a level of insight that yep. other other GPs, other board members did not, you know, were they willing to pick up the phone on a weekend, on a holiday, yep. late at night and, you know, be there as the founder was thinking through a tough decision. That's really important to us. Um, so some of those things are, uh, are just, are important as we're thinking through these investment decisions. And I'll say that, you know, as we think about deal flow, as we think about picking ability, as we think about the ability to add value post-investment, each firm that we back isn't necessarily exceptional in each of those categories. You know, we backed Founders Funds, First Institutional Fund, back in 2007. That's a firm that we're very grateful and excited to be partnered with yep. and have been for a long period of time. They specifically say that they are not the firm to add a ton of value post-investment. They pick founders that they think are great leaders of their firms right. that can steer the ship of the companies themselves and right. they want to be hands-off right. as a partner to them. And so we think they're exceptional on deal flow, exceptional at picking companies to partner with and really stacking into the best companies, but they are relatively hands-off mm. on a value-add basis. Mm. But they basically, they do what they say they're going to do. Yeah, and they, and they do what <laughs> right. they say they're going to do. Right. A firm like Andreessen Horowitz, they um, are really strong on deal flow, we think they're um, relatively strong on picking ability. They have a whole value-added services team right. um, to add value post-investment. So that's a different model. Um, they're really focused on that component of, of, the, of the ecosystem. Yeah. How do you think about portfolio construction at TrueBridge? And and I say that like at a at a high like how many managers do you work with per fund? I assume certain number change fund to fund. Some maybe cycle out, some cycle in. How do you make room for new managers? Is there some amount of capital allocated to like established, you know, funds nine, fund ten VCs versus newer emerging? Like how how do you think about um, portfolio allocation across TrueBridge itself? Yeah, so we. It's been an evolution over time, but today we have roughly 75% of our portfolio allocated to what we call core managers. Okay. So these tend to be firms that invest basically series A through series C or D, but typically series A through C. And that would be the founders funds and... Excel, Andreessen yeah. Horowitz yeah. of yeah. the world and yeah. have performed really well over a longer period of time. Although we do have managers in our core portfolio um, who are relatively new managers who, you know, are just getting started or, or were just getting started when we backed them for the first time, but we think really have the, the potential to outperform and invest across stages. We for, also have a for, segment. Go ahead. Sorry, for every manager do you add, does that mean you're shedding one or the, or, or the funds get bigger to make room for that new manager? Yeah, so we've kept relatively consistent fund sizes over time. Okay. 
Our first fund was $310 million. Our third and fourth funds were $400 million, hard capped at those numbers. And the fund that we're investing out of now, our fifth fund, is $450 million. So not vastly larger from fund to fund. So we try to maintain relatively consistent portfolio construction. As a result, you asked the right question. We do have to uh, trim managers um, to make room for new ones. And so... We are, we're constantly out. We want to be long-term partners to the managers that we back. At the same time, we want to constantly be evaluating our portfolio and making sure that there's not something that we're missing, that there isn't a better opportunity in yeah. another manager, whether it's a new manager or an existing manager, to, um, to add them to our portfolio. And perhaps that does mean cutting a manager. And that means, the, I mean, the bar is really high for new folks, right? That's exactly it's right. Like, not only do we have to believe in this person, but we have to believe in this person or firm so much that we might have to actually shed someone else. Yeah, these are really right. tough decisions. Right. This is a relationship business, and we want to be in this business for a long period of time. Our hope is that the managers that we back are, are going to be successful over a long period of time. So we do not take these uh, relationship-oriented decisions lightly. Yeah. It's something that's really important to us. Yeah. So 75% kind of core, it could be established and also emerging, and then 25% uh, non-core. How do you how do you describe that? Yeah. So the way I would break that down is really it's fifteen percent of the balance is seed or micro VC. Yeah. And then ten percent we continue to have exposure to direct investments out of our fund okay. of funds. Right. It's a bit of a nuance, but that ten percent allocation that's invested in direct or directly in companies today from our fund of funds is invested through our direct fund. So yeah, got it. Um, it's it's just a, a structural way that we decided to keep direct exposure in the fund of funds while also offering it on a pure play basis to other yep. investors that would like that. Yep. The 15% seed um, is 10 to 12 managers in that bucket. Um, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but it's t- basically 10 to 12 managers in the core bucket, 10 to 12 managers in the seed bucket, Yep. Uh, all of which we think have the ability to perform at a high level. Yep. Um, and once again, uh, you know, it's a high bar for adding a new manager to the seed portfolio for that yep. exact same dynamic that you described that, our seed managers have performed really well over the past seven or eight years that we've been working closely with them. The seed market as a whole has performed well. Um, so it's really a high bar to add a new manager to that seed category for us. Um, and the direct sweet spot is kind of like series B and later. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So the way we describe it as post is post product market fit yeah. as companies are scaling rapidly and our managers continue to be excited about those companies. Yeah. We ideally would like it to be a best ideas fund for the companies in our underlying managers' portfolios. Yep. So as these companies are scaling, require additional capital, and particularly as companies are staying private longer and require more capital along the growth phases and the inflection points in their life cycles, we want to have the opportunity to partner with those management teams directly and yep. get direct exposure to those opportunities. It ends up being... Um, sector agnostic. It's across a range of sectors from e-commerce to social to infrastructure to security, but it ends up being, we think, a really good uh, portfolio of assets that our managers and we are excited about. Yeah. Could you could you just speak quickly a little bit to the to the actual investment process at TrueBridge? Because um, one thing that uh, that we were impressed with at, at, at Notation as a firm was it felt like a really buttoned up, highly professional process, and the reality is that uh, you don't get that from every VC, uh, from every LP uh, you go meet with and pitch. So I'm curious if that is just 
the natural way that you guys do business or if there's, um, you know, like some sort of internal commitment to saying, this is what we want the investment process to look like. Here's how we're going to structure it. And, you know, we're going to live and die by that. I'm curious to know internally how much structure you give to the investment process itself. Yeah. And, and by investment process, I mean, VCs coming and pitching you and, you know, uh, trying to partner with you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that compliment. That's certainly what we strive to do is to try to build strong relationships with the managers that we're evaluating and the managers that we ultimately back and hopefully run a buttoned up process and be transparent with the managers that we're in dialogue with. And, you know, if that means no, we're not investing in the firm, we want that to be a straightforward process uh, on both sides. And if it means yes, we just want that to be a, a really buttoned up process and try to be really helpful to the manager as they're building out the rest of their LP base and so forth. Um, so it's it's certainly our, our goal. We know we don't uh, execute it perfectly in every instance. The way I would describe it is that we try to build relationships over a long period of time. So when we're getting to know a manager, we're not necessarily thinking about we have to back their fund that they're raising right. a month from now, three months from now, or six months from now. It might be we're uh, we're going to get to know them and perhaps back them two years from now or five years from now. We plan to be in this business for a long time, and we know that the people that we're building relationships with are really impressive and successful, and we know they're going to be successful over the long term as well. So we want to build those relationships over the long term. And then when it comes down to, I would say, the nuts and bolts of an investment process, the way it looks for us is that we have four senior members of our investment team. We have eight people on our team total. We certainly want all members of our senior investment team to meet the manager right. and ideally meet the manager face-to-face. -face. Uh, it's happened on video conference, a select number of instances with one or two of our team members, but really it's almost always face-to-face. And that's over multiple meetings, multiple conversations that right. this dialogue is taking place. So everyone has the opportunity to ask the questions that are pressing to them. And there's, uh, I would consider a, a fair amount of a wealth of experience on our team um, that's uh, varied and, and interesting from different avenues. So a lot of times people come at these investment decisions from different angles. So I'm always really interested and curious to see what my partners, what my colleagues ask right. and the, the, the path that they go down during a diligence meeting. So that face-to-face -face interaction is really, really helpful for us. And then, you know, we get data room access typically, or we get some data access from the manager where we get access to their prior track record. So that's where we see some of the things that I was mentioning earlier about what their deal flow looks like, who their co-investors are, and what their performance obviously looks like. So we're slicing and dicing that performance a range of different ways. And we spend a good amount of time on that um, is there a goal in terms of like, you know, every manager that goes through the process with TrueBridge, like we want to get to an answer, yes or no, within a month or three months or, you we, know. Like, yeah, we haven't been that specific okay. in that regard. Um, maybe I wish that we were, but I would say, you know, we just want to accommodate the manager's timeline while also fitting it to our process yeah. and kind of everything else we have going on at the time. We certainly like I'm sure you do with founders that you're, you're evaluating, you have to prioritize things and um, move things to the top or the bottom of the list. And so we, we try to make sure we're meeting the GP's timelines that we're working with. Yep. Um, but then, you know, after we spend a good bit of time in the data room, we do what I mentioned in terms of calling founders and getting a sense for, and this is where the most interesting things from a 
a diligence process are revealed. We're right. talking to founders that have taken money from this firm and ideally have partnered with this firm over a long period of time. And we see a lot of the things that uh, that really get us, frankly, excited or we have more muted references that kind right. of dissuade right. us from right. an investment. But And even if it's not negative, you can kind of like, You've done this enough where you can re- speak into read through the lines. Yes, yeah. there are certainly degrees of yeah. positivity on a reference call that yeah. we can read through the lines and yeah. assess. So we've had some just glowing references that are kind of above, above, kind of above and beyond what we've historically seen, and that's what really perks us up and gets ex- excited. We know that if that's the founder experience with this firm, there's going to be a bunch more founders that want right. to take capital from this yeah. firm. Yeah. Um, Biggest learnings over the last decade with TrueBridge, or maybe some things that you maybe think differently about the way that you run the business today compared to when you were first starting, uh, I guess, with TrueBridge in 2008 or even earlier with UNC? Biggest learnings. Um, the first thing I guess I would say is that this is a really hard business. Yeah. Um, yeah. The tech landscape is changing quickly. Uh, to develop unique insights that others do not have is really hard to do. And to convince GPs and on our direct, the direct side of our business to convince founders to take our money to partner with us for a long period of time, that's just really hard to do as well. So we have to work really hard at that. Um, I would say, you know, all of our success at TrueBridge is a function of the people that we back, and that's both GPs and founders. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's you and the founders that are on the front lines doing the hard work. And so um, those are some of the learnings that I've had, I would say, over the past 10 to 12 years in this business. Um, I'd also say you just have to work really hard to develop unique insights earlier than others do. And I guess a couple examples that I would give here. Um, I mentioned Seed earlier, that we think we were relatively early movers in Seed to figure out whether this was a segment of the market that was differentiated, that merited a separate section of our portfolio. We had to go out and figure out which managers to back in the space. Um, So we worked hard to develop those insights, we think a a bit earlier than others. More recently, uh, we did a lot of work last year, and this was relatively early last year on the blockchain space. And so what we saw there was that a number of our marquee core managers, firms like Andreessen Horowitz and Founders Fund, yep. were spending increasing amounts of time and devoting more capital to this category. That piqued our interest. We also heard secondhand from them, and we talked to founders directly that were gravitating toward this space, leaving senior roles at big yep. companies to build companies in and around blockchain. And then we are obviously compelled by the technology. This push toward decentralization in an era where centralized data monopolies are controlling and extracting our data for often unintended purposes. So that was something that piqued our interest and led us to go spend a lot of time with managers that were getting started in this category. And a lot of them had not managed money before. Yeah, It was a brand new category that we had to decide whether it made sense to allocate a portion of our partner's capital to. But we thought by doing the work and by being earlier, we could add value to our partners. So that was that's just been a learning for us to yep. go earlier um, and do the work such that when we take risks, it's a calculated risk. Yep. And we're certainly not going to allocate uh, a massive chunk of our portfolio to the blockchain space, but we decided that we want exposure to it. Amen. Us too. <laughs> um, are there things that you feel strongly about 
today that uh, you maybe didn't quite quite feel the same way when you were first starting out 10 years ago? Interesting. Um, I guess, yeah, like many college graduates coming out at 22, 23, uh, and you know, maybe in this industry specifically, I felt like I was, uh, you know, reasonably smart and I knew a lot. I think what I've realized over that time period is that the compounding returns to experience is really large and probably exponential. You know, given the dynamic that we discussed earlier, that it takes a long time for things to play out in this industry from idea to startup to ultimately M&A or a public company, you know, I feel very lucky to have started in, in this industry when I did, essentially right out of college. Um, you know, we're big believers that pattern recognition, especially in this yeah. industry, is crucial to success. Um, and we're also in an industry where success begets success. You know, you back a successful company in one cycle, it leads to access to great founders that heard about that success in the next cycle. I think similarly, firms that we back and backed over the past 10 years um, that helps us and the success of our platform for the managers that we might back in the future and are willing to take our capital in the future. So um, I just think that ability to see patterns over a long period of time and see opportunities as a result of our prior success is something that I probably didn't realize. And, you know... Just how valuable that was it's, compared yeah. to you know, beyond just being a sharp kid that you know, is interested in this stuff and willing to work. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm learning every day. It's part of what I love about this job. It's really hard, like I said, but I'm learning a lot and will continue to learn. It's kind of a perfect career for lifelong learning. And I think that lifelong learning is what is going to make us more successful as a firm and, and, you know, hopefully make returns for our investors at the end of the day. Last question. Um, any general thoughts on where we are in the in the market and the cycle today? I mean, obviously in a very different place than uh, we were when Truebridge first started at the you know around the financial crisis. SoftBank managing a hundred billion dollar fund. Sequoia, you just mentioned. Uh, rumors are they raised the eight billion dollar fund. Times are a lot different. Um, so curious to get your perspective as a risk manager how to how to manage. The, this period so. yeah it's a great question and i have i guess a couple thoughts on the market so we've certainly been spending a lot of time thinking about softbank and talking to the managers that we back about softbank yeah this is probably a defensible model long term i would say we think that softbank is going to make money hmm. over the long term hmm. i don't know if it's the type of returns that we underwrite to as sure. investors but we think they're going to make money over the long term and we are big believers in tech and our view is that owning good assets over a wide swath of industries, broadly technology-related, is a good strategy long-term. Our view also with regard to SoftBank is that established firms with great portfolios, firms like Excel and Sequoia, they have a unique competitive advantage in raising larger pools of capital to support their existing portfolio companies over a longer period of time. So Sequoia which you mentioned, they have probably the biggest pond or the biggest ocean to right. fish from with regard right. to companies. And they they probably don't want um, to have to outsource that sure. capital, capital providing to sure. SoftBank. They want to sure. be able to keep that in-house. So yeah. we think, think that's relatively unique. I guess more broadly speaking about the market, it's certainly a much easier 
time to raise capital now than it was 10 years ago. And that tends to be negative for returns. If it's easy to right. raise right. money, um, it's probably a bit harder to invest that capital. So it's probably a bit more competitive to invest in and find the best projects out there. We're still big long-term believers in tech and we think the opportunity is massive today, probably as big as it's ever been. So we are very long in this industry long-term with nuance and probably slight pause just around competitiveness and valuations and all the other yeah. stuff that that might yeah. mean for the industry. Yeah. Rob, you're the man. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And um, I think the Origins uh, listeners will too. Awesome, Nick. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, man. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaway, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.